Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick while giving my commentary on it. And in today's episode, I'll be beginning my look at the works Philip Dick published in the 1960s. And um, there's actually a lot of works that Dick wrote in a, this period between like 1959 and 1962 when he wrote Man in the High Castle that weren't published until after he died or much later in his life. These are the so-called like, like, like the mainstream novels he wrote. Um, and I think there was like five, four or five of them that he wrote in this period of time where he wasn't publishing science fiction. I won't look at those until we get to their publication dates, which will be at the end of this series. But just bear in mind that although he wasn't writing science fiction, uh, and it seems to be from a science fiction point of view, if you just read those works, it seems there's a big gap. But he wasn't completely idle at that, at that time of his career. Now, Dr. Futurity, the book I'm going to begin looking at today, was actually originally written back in 1953, and there was a short story that basically ties right into it. I didn't, I didn't look at that story because I'm, I'm not going to look at the stories that were basically first drafts of, of novels. They're, they're not in the collected stories of Philip Dick anyways. So anyways, today we're going to look at Dr. Futurity. It was published in 1960. It's one of two novels he published in that year, but both of those novels were published early in the 19, were written in early in the 1950s, and they didn't see the light of day until 1960. So they're, in a sense, throwbacks. They're really of the 1950s a lot more in their feel. And in, in a sense, I would put both Dr. Futurity and Vulcan's Hammer alongside works like Solar Lottery, The World Jones Made, and The Man Who Japed, because these are novels that really deal with political dystopias. And they're part of I, I, what I think is Dick's response to, to Orwell in a way. Because Orwell had this kind of monolithic dystopia. And that's the dystopia that, that other dystopias are always compared to. And it's very rigid and internal. And Dick's dystopias are much more fluid, much more flexible. They, they change. They're weak often. They can be undermined. They're the exact opposite of Orwell's dystopia. And in that sense, they're a little bit more optimistic. But I really like how Dick plays with all these different way dystopias and how they can be formed. And we actually have in these novels five, if you include Vulcan's Hammer and Dr. Futurity, five different examples of how a dystopia uh, could look like. And they're all based on different rules and different ideologies, different philosophies, and then they can be undermined and challenged in different ways. So I think it's worth looking at Dr. Futurity, even though this and Vulcan's Hammer are both novels that tend to get ignored by Philip Dick fans. And, you know, they, they tend to be compared to his later works unfavorably. And I think we, you miss something when you do that. So I, I think especially Dr. Futurity, I think, has a lot to teach us about the kind of the relationship between the old and the young and how we deal with aging and how we consider it and and what is the place in society for young people in an economy that doesn't need as many people anymore? I mean, we have a very well-educated, 
population of young people today, many of whom who aren't properly placed by the capitalist market economy. And I think we're losing a lot of, of value in that. And now Dr. Futurity doesn't quite get there, but it deals with generation wars, I think, in interesting ways. And it's part of a series of novels Dick is going to write that are going to consider directly the relationship between the old and the young. And I, and I think, by and large, Dick is on the side of the young in these works. And not always. There are times he sees young people as a danger and a threat. But, you know, by the 1960s, he's starting to consider more the problem is the old. And life extending technology becomes a dangerous thing. So I want to set that up. And these are, this is going to be a focus of, of my review and my coverage of Dr. Futurity. Now, that said, this series will be shorter than some of the others I've worked on. Uh, I don't know how I'm not going to have a set number of episodes for each novel. I'm really going to take it a novel at a time. I think I'm going to do Dr. Futurity in four episodes, maybe only three, but but we'll see how it goes when I start recording. I, I'm thinking around four for Dr. Futurity. It still has a lot of themes that we can refer back to it. But I think it's it's contribute like the frontier, for instance, and political dystopias and professionalism and, and those kinds of things. But it's really about age that I think Dr. Futurity makes a contribution to our understanding of, of Philip Dick's entire career and his ideas. I was once told Dr. Futurity is his worst novel, uh, or oh, maybe a second worst novel matched only by Vulcan's Hammer. I, I, I can't really disagree that these are not very artsy. They're, they're not great but I, I just i think they have some contribution to make and so i'm going to try to defend both of these novels over the next few episodes as, as i look at them um but anyways let, let's jump in and let's look at the first like four chapters or so of dr futurity go over the plot and then maybe come back and, and examine a few themes that that Dick considers in those early chapters so our character is our character is Dr. Futurity. Uh, his name is Dr. Jim Parsons. And the the novel actually starts out in a very Dickian way where we're kind of in a world that's that's not our own world. He's having a daydream. And he actually witnesses the destruction of the world that he knows while on his commute home from, from work. It's kind of actually a, a surprising opening. Now, it's, he's kind of, the fact that he can daydream while he's driving, I think is an important point to start out. It teaches something about the world that Jim Parsons lives in, and that is the car's automated. He, he has a driverless car, and so he kind of just can just allow his mind to flow during the commute from work. Now, many of us do this when we drive anyways, but he's, it's easier for him because the car is automated. And you got this massive 16-lane highway running into San Francisco. And so you got this, all this, the, the themes of the commute, the horrendous commute, the, the masses of automated cars, people moving around. I mean, there's this, the implication of suburbia here. And then he begins to think a little bit about how central planning has helped preserve some of the beauty of the countryside by eliminating some of the advertisements that have filtered in over the years. And so again, Dick is really thinking of this kind of the, the commute. And there was a story called uh, called sales pitch that that has this idea of the commute just being 
odiously filled with advertisements, right? Here we actually have a state who's come in and, and tried to remove that to keep some green space. Um, he also thinks a little bit about how the government will, will not nationalize the professional industries of which he is a part, right? So there's not going to be like universal health care that will destroy his, his income. And then as he's thinking this, as he's daydreaming and going through these thoughts, the car veers off the road and he falls into this gray void. And he awakens from the void and Parson realizes suddenly that he can't understand the highway signs. He also notices that the entire look of the city in front of him has changed. Wherever or whenever he is, Parson, he, he kind of comes to terms with it pretty quickly, actually. He, you know, he's suddenly in a different world in which all the rules don't apply. You can't understand the language. But he thinks like, well, they'll always need doctors. And it's a bit unbelievable that he can adjust so quickly to this new world that he's in. But he starts to walk down the road and he's struck by a vehicle that makes no effort to miss him. And this is kind of part of the new rules of this world he's in that, you know, if he's on the road, cars are going to try to hit him and not try to avoid him. The young man driving the car, you know, just lets him in. But Parson realizes that he really was trying to run him down or thought that Parsons wanted him to be run down. So Dick doesn't waste any time in getting right to it, um, that through some car accident, he's propelled into a different time or place. And, and part of the rules of this new world is that cars will hit you if you're, if you're on the road. Um, this is established right away. Um, quote, the door of the vehicle slid back. Hint. The boy repeated, not in a commanding voice, but with politeness. At last, almost as a reflex, Parsons got shakily in. The door slammed shut and the car leaped forward. Parsons was crushed back against the seat by the velocity. Beside him, the boy said something that Parsons could not understand. His tone suggested that he was still amazed, still puzzled, and wanted to apologize. And the boy continued to glance at Parsons. It was no game, Parsons realized. The boy really had meant to run me down to kill me. If I hadn't waved my arms, and as soon as I waved my arms, the boy stopped. The boy thought I wanted to be run down. All right, so why is this? Why do people in the street just get run down in the, by cars? So in the car, Jim Parsons studies the man he's with. He's very young, right? Um, in fact, all the characters in this world are essentially very young, with a few exceptions. He's speaking a strange language that seems to be polyglot, but it, it seems to be based on English. As we'll find out later on, that this is an evolution of English over time. Um, but so you can kind of understand, follow some of the language, but it certainly is a mixture of many different um, languages and dialects and things. Now, his skin color also suggests a multiracial background. And, you know, Dick's not really known for talking much about race, but this he's got this vision of the future of, of racial intermingling. And so race will become something of the past in the future. And I just did a review of, uh, of a, the essays of Charles W. Chestnut not long ago. And one thing that Charles Chestnut talks about in one of his essays is this belief that, that the future race of America will be post-racial, post not in the sense of ide ideology or, or, or values, but actually on a biological level, right? That, that people will just keep intermarrying eventually. And the future is inevitably going to be racial amalgamation. Um, and that's sort of what Dick predicts here as well. So the language is, is diverse the, and mixed. 
amalgamated as is people's racial characteristics. Now, he just looks at one person, so it's hard to project for all people, but that does seem to be what, what Dick is saying about this world. Parsons begins to talk to him immediately, beginning to take an effort in learning the language. Again, we're struck by how quickly Parsons wants to adapt to this world and and feels comfortable. He doesn't really have any culture shock. Well, he has culture shock, but he doesn't have any like that terror moment where he realizes he's in a different world. This is something Dick gets a lot better at in later stories, like in Time Out of Joint. It's a really a slow burn as Regal Gum figures out he's the world he understands is not the real world. Or in Flow My Tears, the policeman said, it's it's a traumatic moment for the character when he's kind of the same thing sort of thing happens to him where he's thrust into a different world or an ubik or in the, he does this a lot, but he gets much better at at making it feel like it's something um, shocking. It's here. It's just he's so rushed, I think, in this story and a lot of his early stories. He didn't really feel he had the time to to play with this. So anyways, they, he's trying to talk to him basically to learn the rules of the language. And as they enter the city, Parson realizes that the city's population seems to be divided into different tribes identified by totem emblems. There are no clear racial or ethnic divisions. Now, Dick seemed to be very fascinated by this idea of, of societies, complex societies, breaking down into tribal cultures. He did it in Souvenir, for instance. That's a, a frontier culture on another planet, but they kind of devolved into different historically defined tribes and they would actually fight wars and things and based on the technology of that culture, which I guess they just study from books and things. And then he certainly does that also in Time Out of Joint, where you have the people who survive on the surface during the war break down, especially young people break down into kind of tribal identities, kind of gangs evolve into into this, into these groups. Now, there are totems that identify the different groups, but there are no clear racial or ethnic divisions. So whatever is these divisions are based on is not race. And again, we get this, we're reminded that this world is racially amalgamated and linguistically amalgamated. He also notices that the population is extremely young. Under the lights of the city, the boy turns on him and accuses him of being sick. Having a clear view of Parsons' white skin, the boy is actually horrified and, and actually sees him as a sick person or an albino or that there's something wrong with him because of how he looks and how he speaks apparently as well. The boy lets him out amongst some warehouses. Looking, he, Now he picks up a pamphlet and he looks at it and he begins to learn that maybe he can figure out this polyglot language. There's enough, I guess, English and French and things in that, enough, enough of the language he understands in this language it's just mixed together so he's able to figure it out which is an important plot point because he needs to very quickly learn to speak this language he can't spend months and months to do it. it's another unrealistic moment but i guess we can just say well he's a doctor and, and smart so he can figure it out he uses his doctor's tools to break the lock of a warehouse and he enters it hoping to find a place to hide but instead he finds a small group of people inside who urge him to close the door Parson begins to understand the language well enough to follow their conversations, which is a pseudo-philosophical dialogue about their non-existence. So let's look at this conversation briefly. I'll just quote from one page of, of the book. It's, it's actually page 158 of the version I have. The version I have is 
three vol three of Dick's early novels in one volume. So I got The Man Who Japed, Dr. Futurity, and Vulcan's Hammer. This was actually the British publication of it. I don't think this edition is published in the United States. So I got like three for the price of one here. Okay, quote, a dapper-looking youth lean, leaning towards him said, We know who you are. At least so Parsons inter, inter, interpreted his statement. Yeah, another man said. Several of them nodded. A woman near the door said, You're the... And a word followed that he could make no sense of. It had a totally artificial ring, jargon rather than language. That's right, another echoed. That's what you are. But we don't care, a boy said. They all agreed to that. Because, the boy continued, his white teeth sparkling, We are not here. A chorus of agreement. No! Not here at all. This is a delusion, a slender woman said. Delusion, two men repeated. Parsons said unsteadily, Who am I, did you say? So we're not afraid, one of them said, or at least so we understood the person to say. Afraid, Parsons said. He caught This caught his attention at once. You came to get us, the girl said. Yes, they all agreed with evident delight, their heads nodding up and down. But you can't. He thought, they'll think I'm somebody else. Touch me, a woman by the door said. She sat down her drink and rose from her chair. I'm not actually here. None of us are, several people agreed. Touch her. Go on. Unable to move, Parsons stood where he was. I don't get it, he thought. I just don't. All right, the woman said. I'll touch you. My hand will pass right through yours. Like air, a man said happily. The woman reached out her slim, dark fingers closer and closer to his arm. Smiling, her eyes alive with delight, she put her finger on his arm. Her fingers did not pass through. At once, her mouth fell open with shock. Oh, she whispered. The room became silent. They all stared at him. Finally, one of the men said faintly, He's generally found us. He's really here, a woman murmured, her eyes wild with fear. Here's where we are, in the basement. They gazed at Parsons dumbly. He could do nothing but gaze back. So then the group conclude that Parsons is a shupu because he broke into the warehouse. Now this, this I think, is the word that they called him before that he didn't recognize. Shupu. S-H-U-P-O. S-H-U-P-O is the word. He denies being a shupo, but they ask him to show his real face. And the heavy set man realizes that Parson is a real outsider. Uh, his skin color is normally associated with a dangerous disease, and his clothing is from the past. He suspects he's from 1910. Actually, Parsons is uh, from 2010. And they are in 2,405. So it's basically 400 years into the future of when Parsons uh, lived. But, you know, again, because the races have amalgamated, this light skin is considered a disease of sorts. He was warned. Now, this man that explains to him that they're in the year 20, the 25th century tells him that outsiders are commonly killed. But he also explains that each tribe is non-ideological and that they lack these distinct cultures that maybe have defined tribes and nations and communities in Parsons' own time. So there's an arbitrariness to this identity. It's the ultimate imagined community, if you will. So Parsons sees this tribal culture and he says, in other words, it's all a primitive society. The stranger isn't considered human, killed on sight, is he? Anything unfamiliar? Your totem device, you're the eagle. You exalt eagle qualities, ruthless and quickness. And then Wade replies, not exactly. All tribes are unified with a common worldview. We know nothing about eagles. Our tribal names come from the age of darkness that followed the H war. End quote. So what you have here, maybe it's kind of like sports in which everyone, all sports fans agree with certain rules and principles and how the game is played. Yet they have these fierce loyalties based on the city that the team is from or, you know, this kind of team loyalty. 
even though they basically are interchangeable, right? I don't know if Dick was thinking about sports teams when he when he wrote this, but that's that's kind of what I thought of. So the people in this warehouse are, it's all arbitrary, but they're associated with the eagle. And the group in the warehouse works on correcting Parsons' skin color and smell, all of which were wrong. So they use makeup and perfume to make them fit in a little bit more. And then when they ask how old Parsons is, they're shocked because Parsons says that he's 32. And this is really horrifying and strange for them. Remember, everyone in this world is very, very young. Parson is still confident that he can make a life outside of the tribe as a doctor. He, he just believes that every, every place will need a doctor and that no matter which time period you're in, physicians will be needed. But he also realizes that these people seem to have no idea about medicine. Now, a competing tribe, now this is, these are identified also as the Shupo. So that where Parsons was really identified as a Shupo actually is the term given for this competing tribe. So they break into the warehouse and they begin attacking the Eagle tribe, critically injuring one of them, a woman named Akara, I-C-A-R-A. So Parsons carries her away to a hotel, carries away the injured young woman to a hotel. Someone asks her to get the hotel euthan euthanator. Euthaner? I guess, yes, I guess it's euthaner. So the hotel has someone whose job it is, is to help people pass on to the afterlife or to pass on to death. Parsons though ignores this claim to get the local euthaner and instead begins working on saving her life. And this is a very critical moment in Parsons' brief time in the future. Okay, so he begins to work and he clears the area and begins to do his doctor job to save the life of this young woman. And then an official named Al Stegnog interrupts him, instructs him to wait for the building euthaner that you shouldn't be you know, messing around. This is the job of the euthaner. But then Parsons complete, finishes saving her life regardless, just as the euthaner arrives. And when he realizes that Parsons has saved this young woman's life, he's actually horrified. He calls him a maniac and a pervert for trying to save her life. So he gets accused of essentially breaking the fundamental rules of, of their society. Stenog places Parsons under arrest for crimes against the United Tribes, which I guess is the name of their society, the overall society. Parson realizes that this society is actually insane in the sense that they welcome death. And this helps to explain why he was nearly run down in the street. The, the driver of that, of that truck just assumed that if a guy's walking on the street, he wants to be hit. All right? So there's, death is not really considered an important thing. It's, in fact, that's one reason that no one is very old here. You know, being 30 is considered old age. So two people observing this event despair that their operation has gone wrong. And this is just an important point for later on that Parson is here for a reason. He's not here just by accident. You know, yeah, it's very abrupt in the beginning of the story that he just warps to this to the future. But in fact, he's been brought here. So later on, Parsons is basically in jail now. He's being interrogated by a clerk about his history. And Stenog and the dark-haired woman and a dark-haired woman take over the interrogation, asking him what it is that these physicians do, because he keeps playing, claiming to be a doctor. And they ask, well, what is it that doctors do? And he learns that this entire society, Parsons learns that this entire society doesn't value saving life. And on the other hand, Stenog and the interrogators are fascinated that there'd be a society anywhere that would find value in saving life. They're curious about this since it proves diversity of human values. 
So we got a very fascinating thing here where there's this assumption that everyone has the same values here. And it's a very homogenous society in a lot of ways. It's racially amalgamated, linguistically amalgamated, ideologically uniformed, but still they break up into these tribes. And that's why I thought of like sports when, when I'm trying to understand how this, this world sort of works. Now, Stenag begins to explain that the average age in their society is only 15 years old. But they're also interested in this issue of time travel because they obviously came from the past. They had, you know, they had experimented in time travel but abandoned them in the past. And the one reason they abandoned it is that despite finding out that time travel is possible, it creates legal problems. And then Parson is told that he must follow the rules of society. They realize that he was not willingly part of this society, that he was brought here against his will and brought here by accident, perhaps. But nevertheless, he has to fulfill the rules of, of this society. And that means he must be punished for saving the life of, of Ikara. Stenog tells him that he'll be sent to a prison colony instead of being rehabilitated, which sounds like it's just code for, for being executed. So he's kind of has his, has his punishment commuted to trans, trans, uh, transportation, like in the old British system. Stenab also explains that the role of the Shupos, the people that attack the tribe in the warehouse, is social regulation. That is the destruction of illegal political groups. They're not really involved in the prison worlds. Finally, Parsons is told about the fate of the young woman, who eventually underwent the final rite after making a complaint against Parsons. So she was, in fact, killed by some kind of government process. And there's actually a name for it called the final rite, which is what the euthanators, I guess, the euthaners do. So Stenag gives us this little philosophy of time travel, and it's, it's an important conversation just as a kind of a, the philosophy of time travel. Stenag says this, What bothers me is that we dropped experimentation with time travel something like eight years ago. The government, I mean. Our principle was put forth showing that time travel was a limited application of perpetual motion and hence a contradiction of its own working laws. That is, if you wanted to invent a time machine, you'd all you have to do is swear or prophesize that when you got it working, the first use you'd put to it would be to go back in time to the point where you got interested in the idea and give yourself, give your earlier self the functioning finished piece of equipment. This had not happened evidently. There cannot be, there can be no time travel. By definition, time travel is a discovery that, if it could be made, would already have been made. Perhaps I oversimplified the proof, but substantially. End quote. So this is kind of like, I guess, a proof against, I mean, the, the other way of putting this is, if time travel is possible, where are the time travelers? Right, that, the fact that we don't see time travelers, and yeah, maybe they're all very secretive and careful, and they have all these rules, but you'd think if, you have an infinite amount of time in the future, not infinite, but millions of years in the future in which time travel could be played with and experimented on. You'd find some time travelers eventually in our time, in our experience, but we have no evidence of that. Of that. Um, man, maybe there's some historical figures. Maybe Ben Franklin was a time traveler. He might be one of the better candidates because he just sort of appears in Philly one day, right? And does all this great stuff. But anyways, that, that, that's another way of kind of putting this proof. Or the, the same way, you know, interstellar travel is very unlikely because we would have seen aliens by now. Much more interesting, though, than the time travel issue, even though the story is called Dr. Futurity, is 
the, how this society arranges itself and how this very youth-based society arranges itself. And the Shupas are apparently part of this in that they sort of discipline and train the tribes and the young people. And they're, they're presented as a threat to this tribe that Parsons meet, but they also have a function of disciplining uh, the society. That's why they're not there in the colonies, because the colonies are for the rejects and the outcasts. So Stenag explains, the Shupos are too valuable to be sent off Earth. A deal of them are our youth, you understand, especially the active element. The Shupo organization maintains youth hostels and schools set apart from society, operate in the Spartan manner. The children are trained both in body and mind. They're hardened. The activity you saw, the raid on the illegal political group, is incidental, a sort of field expedition. They're quite zealous, the boys from the hostels. On the street, they have the rights as individuals to challenge any person they feel is not acting properly. But it's actually in the frontier, because then Parsons asks, well, what's the prison colonies like? And he says, they're city-sized. You'll be free to work, and you'll have a separate dwelling of the apartment types where you can pursue various hobbies and creative crafts. The climate, of course, isn't favorable. Your lifespan will be cut down enormously. Much depends on your st stamina, end quote. So it's very much like what we see in The Man Who Japed, where the rejects get sent out to the frontier. The people who can't conform to the society are sent to the frontier, and therefore... That's where you can be free. The frontier is a place of more individual freedom than in back on Earth. So that does it. That actually takes us almost a quarter of the way through the novel already. And it all seems to happen just in, you know, a little bit like around a day of the life of Parsons. He's driving home uh, in the early 21st century. He gets sent back in time. He meets this tribe. He tries to save the life of a woman. He does, and this is illegal, and for that he's going to be punished by being sent off to the colonies. So that's where we're at in the first quarter or so of this very short, very brief novel, Dr. Futurity. So thematically, it's really about a, a very creative and interesting way to arrange a society uh, based on youth, based on a, a society that doesn't value life the way we value it. And, and a doctor, this doctor has been put in the worst possible world the world in which there's no need for doctors. There's only need for euthanizers. So how does Parsons deal with that? Why has he been sent back forward in time, I mean? Why has he been sent forward in time? What does, how does this contradiction of time travel work itself out? Uh, what are we going to see in the frontier? These are all the questions we're left with. So uh, that does it for this first, my first look at Dr. Futurity. I'll be back to look at the second quarter or so of the book in the upcoming episode. But if you have any comments about Dr. Futurity, please leave them below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, and I'll try to respond to you. So uh, again, thank you so much for listening and for supporting this podcast. Um, please subscribe to this channel if you haven't yet, and you'll see more, uh, more content on other American writers, but mostly right now I'm focused on Philip Dick. So um, that does it. Uh, thanks again for listening, and I'll See you next time with the continuation of my review of, of Dr. Futurity. my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies.